The second reading is from Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 26 and finishing at verse 56, and it can be found on page 830 of your Pew Bibles. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be, to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as, this, as, soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the, humble servant, of, of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ella. Beautifully read. Shall I pray? Father, may our souls glorify the Lord, and may this new year bring joy to those we love, and may this word bring your redemptive power, not just for the moment, but for our lives, for this year. Touch our hearts by your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Simeon, I'm sure, would rather not have had to have said it. But holding 
Mary's baby in his arms, he saw something in the future, something distant, something sad. Did he have a tear in his eye when he looked at Mary and Joseph and holding the baby, said to her, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. A sword will pierce your own soul too, he said to Mary. What does it mean? And I'm all ears, by the way, through the series. I don't know yet what it means. As we begin five studies on the person of Mary through January, what sword, physical or metaphorical, how did it pierce her soul? How does that piercing relate to her son's destiny of the rising and falling of many in Israel and of hearts being revealed? We'll look at some of that next week. But there's something about motherhood in general that provides its own sort of joy as well as grief. Parenthood is a tricky business, but it must be another thing altogether to be the mother of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so in January, we'll have studies in Mary, a soul will pierce your own soul too, five and all. She has, of course, been the object of adoration for millions and millions in the Roman church. You know, Pope Benedict dies 10 seconds before this sermon, which I believe is surely, that the sort of adoration we're talking about is surely problematic from a biblical point of view, and I think you'll see that through the series, but also from Mary's point of view. And yet, and yet, Mary says of herself, all generations will call me blessed. And here we are calling her blessed. Elizabeth claims, exclaims in a loud voice, 1 verse 42, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. So she's important, vital even, among women, blessed. In January, we're going to learn from Mary's life, what we can learn from the moment Gabriel told her the news of the baby until we see her la last in the, in the story, in the upper room, after the resurrection, as a disciple of her eternal son, risen from the dead. It should be acknowledged there aren't that many mentions of her in the New Testament, just a few. She's not in Paul or Peter's league for New Testament mentions. Much easier to write a book on those two. But there is more about Mary than there is, for example, about Nicodemus or Thaddeus. And of course, most of what we uh, study will in fact be about Jesus Christ. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And I dare say Mary would have it no other way. Interestingly, she's not named in John's Gospel as Mary, but rather as Jesus' mother, but mentioned several times. She has a huge place at the beginning of the story, as we all know, just finished, well, we're in Christmas season still. Board never lies. 
Actually, sometimes it does. She's involved in the life and ministry of Jesus, sometimes in complex ways. We'll see that in two weeks. And she's present at the cross of Jesus Christ. Imagine that. And after his resurrection. We've not done a series on Mary at Church Hill, and I'm hoping to learn with you. I do want to nod to the fact that Mary is, of course, a controversial figure, not of her own making, of course, but rather of a historic centuries-old tug-of-war between those who venerate her and those who are triggered by such veneration. But in this series, we're not going to focus on what others get wrong about Mary, as notable as the errors may be, and as clearly as my predecessors of this pulpit could probably articulate them. Might even roll in their grave at such a series. I doubt it. But instead, during this series, we wish to be constructive and look at what Mary teaches us positively about today, about what it means to be highly favoured or full of grace. I'm indebted to the Reverend Dr. Matt Wilcoxon, who's the rector of Darling, Darlinghurst, for the structure of this sermon. I've added a little bit to it and some of its content from a short homily he delivered at morning prayer during Advent. Here's what Controversial Mary teaches us four things, and these are on your outline in the middle of your news sheet if you're taking notes, both of you, which is even less this week. <laughs> four things. One, what the grace of God is from verses 26 to 33, how we receive grace from 34 to 38 of Luke 1, what grace does to us from 46 to 49, and what grace does to the world in 50 to 56. What the grace of God is, how we receive it, what it does to us, what it does to the world. Firstly, what the grace of God is. Well, grace is not a quality we possess, like I'm a graceful person, like a, a, like a, 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 a swan. Not a quality we possess, nor a status we earn like the media will say, such and such fell from grace, meaning they had such great status in life, but they did something wrong, and we've now all cancelled them, dismissed them. Grace is not a quality we possess, nor a status we earn. Instead, grace is, by definition, a gift. We learnt this last year during our year of grace. And in the case of Mary, it is the presence of God with her and for her. That's what chapter 1, Luke 1, 28 says. Greeting, said the angel, you who are highly favoured, full of grace. The Lord is with you. It begs the question, why is Mary highly favoured? What had she done? What is it about her that makes her blessed among women? Perhaps she has some amazing origin story. Perhaps she possesses some special virtue. Maybe she's achieved something great. She's yet to write the mummy blog or maybe something else. We want to accord Mary with some pre-reason for being favoured, because it fits our pattern of lifting up the worthy, and of course, the colliery, destroying those we think are unworthy. You can see this in politics, I think writ large in American politics, although it's here. So, Obama, worthy. Trump, unworthy. Reagan, worthy. Clinton, unworthy. We hold up or destroy a person according to their worth. If we do this with the grace of God, then we have not understood the grace of God. 
You might remember, although it was a year, year ago, Robert Forsyth made these remarks. We made them several times during the series. It was during the Christmas season, he, he said this. He said, the Christ gift was given to the ungodly, Romans 5. The Christ gift was given to the ungodly in the absence of worth, and it was given to all without regard to any preconstituted worth of gender, ethnicity, status, or success. Referencing Santa, he said, there is no list and no selection determined by who's naughty and who's nice. And Mary is, of course, a picture of it. Luke presents her to us as effectively a nobody. He tells us something about Joseph's family. He's in the line of David, although a bit lost, as I said at Christmas, like finding out that a Romanoff lives in the flat upstairs. But, you know, we hear Joseph's family line, but Luke introduces her without telling us anything about her pedigree. Indeed, in her song, she refers to her humble estate. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The one thing God noticed was that I was a nobody. And, and more, she's not only a nobody, but she's from nowhere. Luke has to clarify to the reader where Nazareth is, it's up in Galilee. No one knows where Nazareth is. And as we learn from John's Gospel, those who do know where it is have a joke about it. They say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And even more, she hasn't achieved anything. She hasn't been married, not produced children. She's not had a job. She's not written a book. She hasn't proven her worth to society. She's probably a teenager. She's a nobody from nowhere who's done nothing. And yet precisely in that state, she's told, 1 verse 28, by the angel, greetings you who are highly favoured. So why is she highly favoured? Well, the answer is the next thing the angel says, the Lord is with you. She's highly favoured because the Lord is with her. He is coming to her in the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And together this helps us to understand what grace really is. It is the presence of God with us and for us, irrespective of who you are, where you've come from, and what we've done. That should be disturbing, by the way, and comforting at the same time. The grace of God is God with us and for us, Emmanuel, first. Second, how then do we receive grace? The answer is through faith. We simply accept it. And then, of course, it comes with an obligation to live accordingly, according to the gift. And that's why I think probably Mary is greatly disturbed, verse 29, at his words. There's something disturbing about grace, something um, it's going cha to change your life. It's not going to be then, oh, grace of God means business as usual. It's going to mean something else. Luke one twenty nine. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And after the announcement of the angel, namely, you'll conceive, birth to a son, call him Jesus, he'll be great, son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, really, forever, and his kingdom will, his kingdom will never end. But Mary simply asks, I think, the valid question, uncynically, but curious, curiously, in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary does not question whether or not this grace is given to her. She accepts it, that it's the case, and asks, how can it be? 
and her response is that of faith and acceptance, and this is underscored by what Elizabeth says of her in chapter 1, verse 45, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Blessed is she who has believed. That's how you receive grace. The grace has been given to her and she simply takes hold of it in faith. Expressed in these very famous words, in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Something Matt Wilcoxon showed me in, during uh, the Advent series, he pointed out that Martin Luther says that there's three wonders here in this story. First, that God should become a man. Second, that a virgin should bear a child. And third, that Mary believed. And Luther says it's the third thing here that's the greatest miracle of all, that God gave Mary the faith to believe that God will be with her and for her in this way. It's a miracle, this faith, and it's grace then that she can receive grace. I think it's a miracle that any of us believe that God is for us and with us in Christ Jesus. You have to take it on faith. And yet you see it right here in Mary. There's the word she believes somehow that God will perform this miracle of incarnation. And I believe that God performs the miracle of faith in the human heart. But it's not just sitting out there as a thing you have to muster up. It's rooted in the testimony of Holy Scripture and the angel references Scripture in several ways. And I think the allusions to Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1, begging for a child, weeping, God answers the prayers and gives her Samuel, a child that was destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And the pattern is set up where Hannah herself says, the arrogant will be taken down and the humble will be lifted up. Mary clearly echoes Hannah's song. It is also something that is indescribably good. I think she wants to believe, like many of us want to believe. The news is that good. It appeals to the testimony of our hearts. And third, it's confirmed by the living testimony of others, in this case, Elizabeth, when she visits her, the leaping of the child in her womb. And I think the same way God creates faith in our lives. Scripture speaks to our needs, and as we live in relationship with those who can testify to the miracle of God's presence in their lives, we receive grace by faith. And third, what grace does to us. Finally, Mary bursts into song, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And so I believe she shows us what grace does to us. It makes us people of joyful praise, people who magnify God and declare his kingdom come. That's what Mary's song is all about. I believe the outflow of God's grace in Mary's life and her acceptance of that grace is faith, and it's expressed in a song. She sings, she speaks. You know that phrase, I think it's Tim Keller. He probably got it from someone else. You can't get at the joy until you get out the joy. It, and, um, you know, the singers amongst us know this is, this is true. There's something about joy passing your lips that allows you to go not just this way, but this way. It's praise. It's praise of God's attributes and a declaration for what it means for her in verses 46 to 49. And you'll see a clear change in the content of the song when she speaks of the world from verse 50 
to 56. The outflow of grace is praise, magnification of all that God is, all that God has done, and all that God will do. And so our primary response to God's grace, the way it should transform us, is by making us people of gratitude and praise. And as much as we have to think about things we've got to do, to-do lists, what you've got to get done for work or for the house, the kids, grandkids, the burdens that are on your shoulders. As much as we think of things we have to do for God, for the kingdom, for the world, Mary's response reminds us that the one work that is necessary, the one transforming work that is necessary, the one thing that flows from God's grace in our life is the simple work of gratitude and worship. This is the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and it is our primary work, the primary work of those who believe that God has already done and is doing everything for our good. It is, I would venture to say, our primary calling as Christians to offer God's praise. And if we do so, it's the one thing from which all other things will fall out as they ought. There's a promise contained in worship. Not, I mean, there'll, there'll be suffering. A sword will pierce your own soul too. Come to that next week. Fourth and finally, what grace does to the world. Lastly, Mary becomes, echoing Hannah's song, she becomes the one who, given the word about the birth of the king, she re-narrates the whole world in light of God's grace. The whole world, she says, will be flipped on its head because of the grace of God, therefore a gift to the unworthy, which is why he brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. 